We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps, and I'm joined in the studio today by regular ICRT commentator Ross Feingold. Good evening. And Jie Ting Ye, the co-founder of Cataglan Media. Good to be here. Anyway, tonight we discuss labour laws, the latest on them, the new southbound policy, and how Australia got dragged into that this week. We're also going to be talking about a call for the introduction of flogging. Yeah, okay, take that or leave it. A well-known dance director, and of course... It's nearly the new new year. Well, next year it is anyway in February. So we're going to talk about New Year bonuses. But we'll begin with something we here in Taiwan can't seem to get away from for the past several weeks, especially if you pick up any of the island's newspapers on a daily basis, that being the Qingfu shipbuilding scandal. Now, this week there was yet more news about it, and it began with the Ministry of National Defence censuring some 23 retired and serving naval officers which included the Deputy Defence Minister Pu Zhe-chun and the Chief of General Staff Admiral Li Shi-ming basically over the Qingfu case. Now they received punishments for misconduct and the officers received demerits or warnings for failing to check whether Qingfu had both the financial and manufacturing ability to build the six minesweepers before the company was awarded the contract in 2014. Now several of the other officers are also being disciplined for failing to file an updated report on the budget for the project. And the Kaohsiung District Court seized Qingfu collateral this week, taking over several floors of the building it owns in Kaohsiung. That was done on the order or the request of the first commercial bank, which, of course, Qingfu owes money to. Now, those are the two first things this week. Then President Tsai Ing-wen came out on her Facebook page in a video released by the presidential office and made several comments about the case, although they were sort of roundabout comments about the case when she just simply said she hopes the military will continue to invest in locally made naval ships in order to promote the island's indigenous defence industry. She also asked the military to face up to its errors in the Qingfu case and correct them so they don't happen again and she basically said her government will push for the continuing production of naval vessels in Taiwan regardless of what happens with the Qingfu case. So the Qingfu case Ross, you can't get away from it either what do you have to say about these latest interesting things that happened this week? I'll say this Gavin, if President Tsai and Premier Lai are listening to this program as I'm sure they do every week, uh, they need to do more. Not just investigate whether or not there was corruption but also investigate whether or not there was incompetence and it up to now, it appears that we at least have the latter, and we very likely have the former as well. So that there appears to be a significant level of incompetence in this procurement process, the aftermath of the bid winning and monitoring the winning bidder in the construction of these minesweepers, and there very possibly appears to have been corruption as well. And they cannot put the blame only on military officers or the former government. So a more thorough investigation, a more transparent investigation is absolutely necessary to restore the public's confidence in, in both the military generally and the 
procurement process and, and ultimately uh, domestic uh, construction of military equipment specifically. And as we know, that was a cornerstone or remains a cornerstone of president-sized defense policies, which is to develop an indigenous defense industry. And if this issue cannot be resolved with transparency and, frankly, speed, uh, it calls into question the ability of her government to execute on her promise to build an indigenous defense industry. Now, of course, you mentioned investigations. Of course, the cabinet has an investigation. The control UN has an investigation. The justice ministry has an investigation. This is possibly too many investigations. Well, these various bodies that you identify, they are legally empowered to do these investigations. The concern is that they take too long and they go roundabout. And the roundabout is something we've seen with numerous, unfortunately, previous military procurement scandals now going back 25 to 30 years. So there's this risk that too many scandals become too roundabout. And ultimately, we get people who raise their hands and point in both directions and say, go talk to the other person. They are the one responsible, not me. That's the risk with these uh, military officers that you identified who were censured this week. These are not the most serious punishments possible. Uh, And it really lacks the transparency that I think the public deserves. This is ultimately taxpayer money and about keeping Taiwan safe from the Chinese threat. And more needs to be done to get to the bottom of what happened, but also to ensure that ultimately the Navy is delivered the equipment that it needs. Um, I agree. I think in Taiwan, there's um, been sort of this longstanding problem of the public's lack of confidence in the military, right? And um, the, the the public's uh, perception of the military as being outdated, as being you know corrupt, as being incompetent. You know, this is does not bode well for Taiwan's specific defense situation. Um, you know, Taiwan being in one of the most dangerous hotspots in the world. Right. And do you think heads will roll? Well, that that's what really remains to be seen. So censuring or disciplining retired officers is kind of meaningless. Um, we have to wait and see if indictments will be handed down uh, for people who are guilty of corruption or incompetence. We're not there yet. Uh, and it's not a solution to say it's all the fault of the previous government. It, it's clear that both the previous government under Mayang Zhou, as well as the current government under President Tsai, both share responsibility because President Tsai's government has now been in office for a year and a half, uh, during which uh, this contract was already in operation. It's it's not just something that occurred under the previous government. So uh, will heads roll, Gavin? We just don't know. But uh, there again, there needs to be a transparent and speedy uh, adjudication of these very important issues. And we're not there yet. Jieting, you're based in San Francisco. I mean, do you think they, the U.S. officials are watching this case? Um, I'm pretty sure U.S. policymakers are watching this case just to see, you know, how... Um, how, what is the resolve of the Taiwanese government? You know, how serious is the Thai administration in terms of um, self-defense, right? So, you know, people in the people in DC always talk about, you know, we want to help Taiwan help itself, right? And you know, I think this is one of those things where people are saying, you know, if you can't clean house, how are we, you know, able to trust you with our technology, with 
you know, selling you our latest weapons. You know, I think that creates a lot of wrinkles in that negotiation. Although there's another angle to that, which is both uh, on the Taiwan side and the U.S. side, uh, we, we get away from building an ind- indigenous defense industry in Taiwan, and we just revert to uh, Taiwan allocating budgets, although there's always a debate whether enough is allocated, but simply purchasing their needs, right? So uh, th- there could be industry or uh, policymakers, scholars on the U.S. side who say, you see, you guys just can't do it on your own, which I think would be a terrible outcome, because we all agree it's important that Taiwan builds an indigenous defense industry. But one potential outcome here, Gavin, is uh, we, we just give up on that, and then we just keep buying from overseas. And as we know, buying from overseas ultimately means just one supplier of the United States. That just would not be a positive outcome for Taiwan. Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, in terms of the U.S., there are people who do have an interest in seeing Taiwan's indigenous defense industry fail, right? Um, but as Ross said, you know, I think that's not going to be a good outcome for Taiwan at all. Um, just because you know it's, it, it's especially since the government has put in such a emphasis on this particular issue and on this particular initiative that they're doing, you know I I do think that um, this is a uh, sort of a bellwether to see whether the Thai administration is serious about its uh, defense administration, the defense industry um, goals and vision. Right. And then we'll move on now on another thing which more repeats. This beginning of the show is just more repeats of things we've covered before. This, of course, this week we had a committee, a joint legislative committee meeting to basically review the cabinet proposal for amendments to the amendments to the amendments to the amendments of the Labour Standards Act. Now, of course, this didn't go too well. There was massive protests outside the legislative UN building by Labour groups who opposed any amendments to the Labour Act as the government is proposing them and inside the committee room itself well the opposition filibusted the first day rather loudly the second day of the committee meeting the opposition decided to filibuster in a different way and they refused to continue until more chairs were brought into the meeting room or they were all moved to a larger meeting room so with lawmakers in this quandary this stalemate over the Labour Standards Act the amendments to the amendments to the amendments to the amendments and I could go on with the word amendment there but I won't do you think when do you think this will finally be agreed on Ross it'll definitely pass in the coming days or at the latest in the coming weeks and public opinion polling shows that the public is overwhelmingly supportive of revising what were the mistaken changes uh, in the recent year. Uh, So yes there will be some winners and losers as they go about these new upcoming revisions, and those are the groups that are protesting. So there are people who say, no, no, we actually like the protections that were uh, passed most recently, uh, and they don't want to see those protections with regard to how overtime is calculated and maximum number of overtime hours is set. Uh, So those are the people protesting, but they, frankly, are the minority, and the majority of people do want to restore some of the flexibility that previously existed for overtime work, and uh, they ultimately it will get passed and it will probably be a positive outcome. Of course, the protesters yesterday outside the Legislative UN also demanded the restoration of the seven public holidays that were axed from our yearly holiday here. Um, yeah, I think I take a little bit of a different view. You know, I, I do agree in that I think the law, um, these uh, the bill I think will pass, you know, as a matter of time, um, despite the efforts of the opposition groups. Um, you know, I do think in terms of just the developments this week, 
I think what's kind of strike me as interesting is um, uh, Jiang Wanan from uh, the KMT, who sort of became this uh, hero for the opposition because he was coming up against this law. But these, you know, these are the same people who were very vehemently against uh, you know, protesting against the, the KMT um, back in the day. So, you know, I think in terms of the the, the, poli- the sort of the political shifts, I think that's sort of an interesting point to see. Um, you know, I I think. You know, in the coming days, you know, I would really kind of watch to see what the opposition does in terms of, you know, obviously they, you know, understand well that, you know, I think it's a matter of time that some of these the amendments do pass. Um, it's just sort of, you know, how do they capitalize on this opportunity to tell their constituents or to tell the people who are opposed to these changes, you know, that they are fighting for their rights. And I'm sure we'll have to come back to the Labour laws because, of course, this week was the committee meeting and it wasn't in the chamber. When it goes to the chamber, we'll probably have more shenanigans to talk about. Anyway, let's move on to something new. Well, new for this week anyway. And that being the government is being busy touting its new southbound policy and related investments. Now, the Ministry of Economic Affairs this week said that the number and value of inward and outward investments involving countries targeted by the new southbound policy saw a year-on-year increase in the first 10 months of this year. And figures show that there are 107 investment projects in related countries from the January to October period, and the government said that that represented a 1.5% increase in the number of projects for the same period of last year, while the amount invested stood at 3.484 billion NT, and that represented a 99.5% year-on-year increase. Now, countries that reportedly saw the highest increases in investment under the new southbound policy included Australia, Thailand, the Philippines, Malaysia and Indonesia, all of which the government says saw more than a 100% year-on-year increase. But all that good news, of course, was somewhat overshadowed by news that Australia reportedly scrapped plans to negotiate a free trade agreement with Taiwan due to pressure from China. Now, this was reported by the Australian Financial Review, which also reported that one Australian senator accused Canberra of kowtowing to Beijing. So... Jieting, the new southbound policy seems to be a success. Well, so the government says. Yeah, no, I I do think so. I mean, it's a I think it's a long term kind of thing, right? You're talking about investments. You know, th- these things take you know at least you know several years, if not longer, to see results, right? And so you know, I I think it's. It's 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 a little bit too quick to judge, you know, just based on you know sort of market fluctuations and you know news events to see whether or not it's the the overall policy is a good idea. The number of projects inbound from southbound countries that leads to this large increase percentage-wise, Gavin, you cited numbers as high as 100%, is because it's coming off of a very low base. Indonesian companies or Thai companies, for example, don't make a lot of inbound investments into Taiwan. Generally, the investment flow is the other direction. It's companies from Taiwan that invest in those countries. Uh, So we shouldn't focus too much on the percentage numbers, because when you're working off a base of uh, one, and then you get one more, and now you suddenly have a very large percentage-wise increase. And the, the, there's a significant factor here in, in, in why those numbers sound so high. And the government officials will admit that we're working off of a low base. Uh, and also, a lot of this inbound investment from southbound countries, like Indonesia or Thailand, very often it is Taiwanese companies roundabout sending their money back to Taiwan and then they, from, from operations in those countries. And, and they're doing it because they want to um, have good relations with the Taiwan government 
government. They're patriotic, so they want to be supportive of the government's initiatives. So they make uh, investments in Taiwan coming out of their operations in the southbound countries, and then it gets reported as inbound investment, and every, I guess everybody's happy. Uh, the, the, the reality is that these numbers are still very small, and the future is more in Taiwan companies investing in Southeast Asia than it is Southeast Asian companies investing in Taiwan. Yeah, I mean, I think a part of the draw for this policy is for Taiwanese companies to not to you know invest in Southeast Asian com- uh, countries instead of investing in China, right? And so I think in that sense, you know, you have Taiwanese companies um, taking some of their investment money or you know shifting them from China to Southeast Asia. I think that's a good thing. But Southeast Asian countries have always been open to Taiwan investment. It's not like because President Tsai announced I have a southbound policy that the governments of Indonesia, Thailand, or other members of ASEAN changed their laws and regulations to make it more friendly for Taiwan investment. In fact, uh, for decades, these countries have been very open to investment from Taiwan companies. And ultimately, private industry is going to go and deploy their capital wherever they think they can make money the best. Or the most, not not because of uh, a policy announced from the presidential office in Taiwan, and that's why we still see, despite uh, political tensions or perceived slowdown in the economy of China, the the majority of outbound investment from Taiwan still does go to China. And what about the Australia controversy, Jieting? Um You know, I I don't feel like that actually overshadows the overall policy that much. Um, to me, you know, I. I think everybody kind of expects this. Um, I, I don't think anybody will tell you, oh, you know, now it's going to be, you know, China's not going to interfere. I mean, China does do a lot of business in Southeast Asia and in Australia, right? They do have a lot of pull. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it is going to be pretty tricky for Taiwan to, you know, do business there, um, you know, if you're not, you know, cognizant of what you know, China is doing. In the current political environment, I mean the cross-straits political environment, it's extremely difficult for ASEAN countries or Australia, uh, Korea, Japan to sign any kinds of official agreements with Taiwan. And that's the reality. And people need to admit that. So whether it's a a bilateral FTA between Taiwan and Australia or Taiwan's entry into the CPTPP, the, the new TPP that was announced by the 11 remaining economies uh, during the APEC conference after the withdrawal of the United States, the likelihood that Taiwan can enter is extremely low in the current political environment. And we have to keep that in mind when we read these very optimistic, aspirational statements by uh, observers or government officials here from Taiwan. We want to be part of the CPTPP. We want to sign an FTA. Well, that's nice, but, but there's no signals from the other side that they're interested in doing this. No, I... I don't know if I completely agree with that. Yes, I mean it's going to be difficult, um, you know, and I do I do agree with the fact that yes, that um, you know I think people are looking to the cross streets situation and going you know Taiwan and China. They're not that um, you know things are a little bit colder between the two, you know, and so and I you know I I, I do think that you know these trade negotiations right they they happen over very long periods of time. Um, they go, they outlast administrations. You know, I, I think people are people are still negotiating them, whether or not, you know, I think, you know, what, whatever is going on between, you know, in, in the cross-strait situation. You know, I think, to me, it just doesn't seem that, um, 
the the fluctuations between what's going on between Beijing and Taipei is going to be the deciding factor as to you know when they sign or if they are going to sign. I feel that you know if the business case is made well, um, you know they might not sign right away because you know of certain political tensions. But you know I think the overall trajectory should be about the same. Well, basically, what you're saying, Jay Ting, is that uh, China would not request demand or however you want to describe it, one of the CPTPP members to block Taiwan's accession. Um, and uh, I would say the likelihood is, in the current environment, China would do that. They would signal its displeasure at the eleven economies in the CPTPP welcoming Taiwan in. But more immediately, is there are no members of the CPTPP who have publicly said, yes, we want Taiwan in. They, they just say nice, friendly things. But they would say that about any country that, that uh, said, oh, we'd like to join. And so it's just, like I said before, it's aspirational, but I think the reality is just not there yet. The signals just don't exist. Run flipping back to the story of the Australia story, the claims that Australia scrapped the trade deal with Taiwan because of China. I did contact the Australia office here in Taiwan pay this week and although they didn't have a comment they weren't commenting on it directly they did send me a release and comments by the australia attorney general george brandis which basically described taiwan as being an an important economic partner for australia and they expect bilateral relationships to expand and continue it also went on to say that the government in canberra is open to the possibility of pursuing better market access arrangements and closer economic cooperation with taiwan it was a pretty basic statement well what did catch my eye though was one part when the statement from australian government said that it expects to see strong growth in energy exports to taiwan over the medium term as taiwan transitions its energy mix for example australia is well placed to meet taiwan's growing demand for lng in the longer term and coal over the shorter term so obviously ross australia is very keen to continue quite quite you know money-making, shall we call it, trade with Taiwan? Of course. Uh, Taiwan uh, is a g- good customer for Thai- for Australian products, uh, whether it's agriculture or, or energy, uh, and it would be foolish not to acknowledge that. But again, there's nothing in there about wanting to sign a free trade agreement. And frankly, why would they? If, if Taiwan is already buying all these products uh, from Australia, and if uh, Australia is generally open to investment from Taiwan. There, there's really no pressing need to sign an FTA. Right. From that moment, we shall move on. And time, this is another more business news. Sorry about this this week. Most of it's business news, but never mind. Anyway, Taiwan once again placed 23rd in a global talent ranking study by the International Institute for Management Development. Now, Taiwan was ranked 25th overall in the area of investment and development, 26th in appeal and 22nd in readiness, which also, of course, kept it at 23rd place. However, the IMD's World Competitiveness Centre did warn that although Taiwan's overall performance this year has been quite good, there were some areas of concern in the long term. And the centre said those areas of concern involved Taiwan needing to improve its educational spending, stop the brain drain and attract foreign skilled personnel. And the annual survey, of course, aims to assess how individual economies rather develop, attract and retain talent to sustain the pool that companies employ to create long-term value by comparing their investment and development appeal and readiness scores so ross 23rd again 
Well, the results of this study identify things that those of us who are in Taiwan, who do business in Taiwan, or who comment on Taiwan's business and politics, as we do here on the show, uh, are aware of these uh, items that the study identified. This is no secret. It's nothing new. So we know that Taiwan has a problem uh, retaining talent, has problems developing talent as well. There, there are certain skills that the workforce uh, needs to improve on, certain uh, aspects of problem solving and, and critical thinking. Uh, some would say English language skills need improvement as well. Uh, and the brain drain issue is that the best uh, do often leave because uh, work conditions, opportunity for advancement, and ultimately compensation packages are often very uh, low in Taiwan compared to what one could earn in places like Hong Kong, Singapore, and increasingly in Shanghai. Uh, so uh, again, those conclusions are pretty obvious, and we'll see if policymakers have any, uh, have any good ideas for addressing that. But I wouldn't expect any rapid change just because of the 23rd ranking in this study. Yeah, to me, I think this is sort of in conjunction with the the labor regulations issue that we just covered, right? So you have, on the one hand, businesses saying, you know, we need more flexibility, we need more ways to, um, you know, we, we need more ways to to use our wage workers in, you know, in ways that are not favorable to the laborers, yet you have people say, okay, well, we need to stop these people from, we need to stop the sort of the better, the people who are more white collar, the more, the people who are more talented from leaving, right? And so I feel like there's, there's this sort of two sides of the, this where one, on the one hand, you're, you're saying, okay, we want to make the environment a little bit more favorable to manufacturing, to low skill labor, right? And then you're, you know, and then you're saying you're telling enterprises to say, you know, yeah, we're going to be open for this side of the business. You know, invest in, you know, go down that road. Whereas you're not, you know, whereas people are saying, well, you know, you're not asking these people to invest in talent retention, in, in, in investing in education, right? And so I, I feel like there's these two issues are sort of, um, I mean, they're very related, and you know, I feel like people should think of them, you know, in conjunction with each other. Right, and we shall think about them and take a short break because we have to listen to these important commercials, but we'll be right back here on Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to begin this half of the show with the flogging. That being the one Premier William Lai and Interior Minister Ye Juen Rong were forced to respond to this week after a petition posted on the National Development Council's Public Policy Network Participation Platform, that's a mouthful, urging the introduction of flogging as a punishment for drunk drivers, sex offenders and child abusers, garnered more than 5,000 signatures of support. And of course, if a petition garners more than 5,000 signatures, the mandated government agency is obliged to respond. Now, the Premier said that he believes the public would have reservations about potential human rights violations should the government introduce flogging. While Yeah called the adoption of flogging as a punishment for drunk drivers, as the petition named, and other criminals incompatible with mainstream international views on human rights and the law. Now, apparently the person who proposed the petition reportedly wanted to use flogging as an additional layer of deterrence to existing laws to remedy crime. So, jetting, flogging for people that drink, drive, and get other things wrong. 
um, you know, I personally am opposed to that. But you know, the petition um, garnered over twenty thousand signatures, so it is not an insignificant sentiment that people in Taiwan want to see some of these um, wrongdoers, shall we say, you know, in at least in, in their eyes, you know, severely punished. Whether it's you know for deterrence or you know in my opinion for more for retribution purposes, right? Because you you know people people pass around these stories of you know drunk driver hit you know my my aunt and her child died in the car accident. You know people get really upset about that, right? And so people want to see some sort of retribution, um, you know, and also obviously deterrence for these kind of things. Um, then again, then you have. The issue of this being an open, you know, government petition, and you know, I know um, Minister Audrey Tang has been very um, proactive in pushing this sort of you know, bottom-up, um, more civic engagement type of platforms, and to get people to submit these. And I think this is actually a very good um, sort of test case to see. Well, you have something that is. You know, to I would say to many people, sort of kind of ridiculous, right? You know, but then again, yes, it, there is some sort of you know, as I said, insignificant, uh, not an insignificant amount of support for this, right? So how does the process now go on, right? For something that you know, I would imagine at least people in the government, or at least Premier Lai, does not want to see implemented. Um, but how do you sort of make the process work so that you know you have all sorts of you're not censoring these petitions um, because the person at the top does not like them, right? So how do you make this process? You know, how do you go through this process where um, it is something that's constructive for the society, you know, and not sort of you know sort of okay, we're going to open for people to comment, but yeah, I don't like you, so you know. Yeah, that's, Never what mind. It, right. that's what it. That's what it came. When I first read this, that's what it came over as. It, it came over as a certain clique of people were just angry, and they came, one of them came up with an idea and just stuck it on the internet. It got backed by other people who had who were also angry, and the government was forced to respond to it. Well, the government, uh, I, I wouldn't call it forced. I would say that the there is a policy that requires the government to respond to signatures or sorry petitions that have a certain number of signatures so now you know, to address Jay Ting's point uh, about how to respond to this request uh, and to make the, the people who submitted it feel that their voice is being listened to uh, they will get a response and they, they are going to be listened to because the government is required to respond now that in reality means uh, the stakeholder government agencies such as the Ministry of Justice and potentially others will have to put some staff time into coming up with a response and we we all know that ultimately this is not going to be passed into law, so it's just going to be a big waste of taxpayer money to have government officials discuss this and issue a response paper and answer questions at a press conference because the media will love this story as it turns for the next few weeks until the government issues its response. So it's just a big waste of taxpayer time and money, in, in my opinion. Uh, but I do think Premier Lai got one thing wrong in the quote that you read, Gavin. He said that this type of punishment would be inconsistent with the public's notion of human rights. Actually, as Jay Ting indicated, the public is very supportive of this kind of punishment. And we also see that with overwhelming public support to maintain the death penalty as an option for uh, murder cases. Uh, and it's the courts where there is a more progressive view about uh, appropriate types of punishment. So it's not the public who, who would feel it's inconsistent with uh, human rights 
uh, policies. It's actually the courts, which would ultimately, even if this was passed into law by the legislative UN, which is very unlikely, but it's the courts that, who would find it unconstitutional and as in violation of uh, human rights protection. Just the way judges are very reluctant to sentence offenders to the death penalty, even though the law um, permits that in, in murder cases. Yeah, no, I think there's, um, in terms of, you know, wasting taxpayer money, you know, I, I think the, the the point of having these open portals is to have people, well, one, feel like their voice is being heard, and two, to honestly, you know, honestly to get ideas and um, opinions that, you know, bureaucrats and elected officials may not otherwise have come up with themselves, right? And so I think... You know, we're looking at a very extreme case, which is, you know, kind of pushing the boundaries of, you know, how are we going to deal with having a system like this, which, you know, you will assume for the majority of the time will produce some sort of interesting idea or idea that could then be developed into a policy that makes things better. But to make that work, you need to have people feel like they can put up any sort of idea, right? And so you do have to have some sort of filtering mechanism. Um, but, you know, at this level, I think, you know, this is a very good test case to see, well, okay, like, we're going to come up with some crazy idea, as, as everybody kind of understands, is not going to get passed. But how far is, is it going to go get into the process? Would it lead to some sort of changes in the punishments for, you know, drunk driving and for, you know, other kind of these, you know, misdemeanors and, um, you know, felonies? You know, may not result in flogging, but might result in some sort of you know more nuanced changes in the criminal code. But but right? I I don't think changes are necessary. It's really a question of just enforcing the laws that are on the books. Well, and what we see, see but Jayting, what we see is frankly a lot of incompetence. And and I am a lawyer, and I have been involved in criminal cases in Taiwan, as well as many civil cases litigation. Um, we see prosecutors and judges who. Uh, are, are just not very good at what they do, and they don't enforce the laws, or they misinterpret their own laws, and, and that's a big problem, and that's what leads to the public anger, and then we have judicial reform, and, and we, we have no outcome on that yet, but, but ultimately, I think this is an issue of appropriate training for judges and prosecutors, and then enforcing the laws rather than being reluctant to give the harshest sentences possible. What we do see is judges not giving the harshest sentence possible in some of these cases, like a drunk driving. Um, they, they, the judges seem open to the protestations of defense lawyers or psychiatrists, and you could always find a psychiatrist to say that a defendant ha had a, a bad childhood or some such thing, and then you get the judge who, who gives a light sentence. That is the problem. That is why the public is upset and is receptive to this flogging proposal. It's because sentencing is, is, is often the judges going light. Well, I mean, I don't know if, uh, I mean, for me, I wouldn't say, you know, if I know if changes are necessary or not. I mean, you may very well be right. And, you know, given that you have experience in the system here and I don't, um, you know, I'm not going to dispute that, right? But I think the value in having this open platform and having people put up these ideas is that, you know, it, it makes the news. Now, now we're talking about it, right? Now their opinion is coming out, okay, maybe the problem is not with the sentencing, well, maybe not with the punishment, but maybe with enforcement, but maybe with the courts, maybe with the prosecutors, maybe with the training, right? So I think in that, at that level, I think it is a good thing for society. Now we'll move on to a survey by the Yes123 online job bank, which showed that 66.8% of employers 
who were asked the question said that they will give their employees year-end bonuses this year. Now, of course, year-end bonuses are traditionally given to workers ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday, which, of course, falls in February of next year. And apparently the number of respondents that responded positively to this latest poll by the Job Bank was more than last year, which basically meant that the Job Bank turned around and said more people will be getting bonuses this year. Well, as you indicated, Gavin, it is a tradition to pay bonuses, and uh, ultimately this discussion will be how large was the bonus? Was it two months? Was it 3.1 months? How did it compare to previous years? But I would suspect no matter what the general bonus level is, uh, a few months later we'll still hear uh, labor generally, employees saying that they feel that the compensation levels are too low in Taiwan, and we'll hear government officials say uh, we're trying to change that and we're encouraging employers to raise compensation. Uh, so in a way, it's it's unfortunate that there's so much focus on uh, the, this one-time annual bonus rather than the overall compensation package and the monthly salaries, which is really where changes need to be made. Yeah, I mean, I my question is, if I were an employer and I'm not planning to give bonuses, why would I fill out the survey, Right. Well, if you were an employer not giving a bonus, J-Ting, you'd probably be flogged by your employees. Uh, I'm sure there's a petition like that <laughs> going around somewhere. Don't give anybody ideas, though. So, um, Apparently, the survey showed that employees in the financial and insurance sectors are likely to get the highest average expected bonuses next year, equivalent to 2.33 months of their salary. That actually raises some really important and interesting points, Gavin. You know, typically, it is the financial industry that uh, does pay good bonuses. Uh, and right now, we're in a period where financial institutions are doing relatively well. So they do have good results, and they do have the ability from from a good 2017 to pay out of their profits some bonuses. That being said, the number you cited, uh, the number of months you cited, frankly, is relatively low. And if the financial industry is considered the, the bellwether, the leader, uh, the the industry with the ability to pay the most, that means people in other industries should be expecting something below the 2.3 months you mentioned, which would mean that people in other industries are going to be getting very modest bonuses. Apparently, those in the media and public relations sectors look set to get the lowest year on bonuses next year, equivalent to 0.45 months of salary. And we get to the final story today, and the three of us are well qualified to talk about this story because... Jieting, Ross, and myself know so much about modern dance. Oh, sure. Um, no, totally not. Um, but we... Um, we have heard of... We, Lin- we, we, are, we are here, and the story happened this week, so we have to talk about we, it. We now. have heard of Lin Huai Min, though. Yes, we yes, do. Yes, of course. That's, of course, Lin Huai Min of the Cloud Gate Dance Theatre Group. Now, he announced on Thursday of this week that he's going to retire. And that sent shockwaves, of course, through Taiwan's cause celeb. And, of course, it's modern dance fans. And you being a modern dance fan, Ross, what did you think when Lin announced he was retiring? Well, the, the important thing with the Cloudgate is that for many years it's been a, a well-known and, and highly regarded representative of Taiwan's soft power. And uh, foreign visitors, foreign dignitaries are taken to see Cloudgate performances. Cloudgate often goes overseas, uh, very often with the support of Taiwan government or Taiwan companies uh, to perform and uh, always emphasizing that they are from Taiwan, which sometimes we don't see, say, with 
certain Taiwan companies who make large investments overseas, sometimes they're not associating themselves with Taiwan, and they don't come across as a representative of Taiwan, and sometimes uh, people confuse them as coming from China. Uh, but CloudGate has always emphasized that it is from Taiwan, and in that regard, they've been a wonderful representative of Taiwan culture for, for the world. Uh, the important thing, though, with his retirement is not just that one person replaces him. Ideally, there'll be three, five, or ten more people just like him who are able to create an organization that people around the world do associate with Taiwan in a very positive way. Uh, and let's hope that he'll emphasize that. I, I saw some of his remarks when he announced his retirement, you know, talking about that he's getting older, it's time to pass on the, the leadership to, to someone else. Uh, but I, again, I would hope that um, as he goes towards retirement, he talks about building more organizations and identifying more people just like him uh, who are focusing on exporting Taiwan's um, mm -hmm. soft power. Yeah, and you know, also it's not like cloud gate is disbanding or going away, right? You know, I think there is something to be said about looking forward to having the younger generation take over something like Cloudgate, you know, something that's already so iconic. And then expanding it or saying, you know, banking more of a representation of Taiwan, you know, than it is, you know, even more so than it is already now, right? And so I think um, the, you know, I, I, I think there is a tendency sometimes to associate one brand with the founder, right, with the person. And people, you know, get, you know, understandably nervous when the person retires or, you know, sort of fades out from the scene. But the brand that he built is there, and the brand that the founder he or she built is meant to outlast the founder, right? And so I think it is um, something to be look, you know, something that we can look forward to. And if anyone's interested, the CloudGate dance troupe has been around since 1973 with Lin at the helm, and he's just released his latest work, which is, like Ross said, promoting Taiwan. His work is called Formosa, and it's apparently Lin's 90th work with the CloudGate group. There you go, and I hope he has a happy retirement when he retires in about 18 months. Anyway, I've been joined in the studio today on Taiwan This Week by Ross Feingold. And uh, happy Thanksgiving to those who are celebrating the holiday this weekend. And Jetting Yeah. And uh, even though I'm missing Black Friday in the US, um, I would rather be here. There you go. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can access all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.